and welcome to Toggle Town, taking small town America from a zero to a one. I'm your host, Ryan Tomich. In this podcast, we interview individuals who have taken technology and applied it to their industry and lives for the betterment of small towns, diving deep into how and why they did it, reflecting on the importance of their accomplishments, and the next steps that can be taken to improve and inspire the next phase of innovation. This is episode 0.4 with our guest, Ethan Keeler. Ethan, welcome to the show. Glad to have it. Glad to be here. <laughs> Ethan completed his PhD at the University of Washington in the fields of electrical and optical engineering. After graduating, he served in the United States Congress as a technology advisor for the um, Senate for the Senate Committee on Commerce, Commerce, Science, Transportation, advising on issues including privacy, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, net neutrality, and 5G. Since he has turned his focus to the world of technology startups, one here in Montana and another in Seattle. In his personal time, he loves the outdoors like most Montanans, but when he's not outside, he develops a number of crazy lighting projects, including musically choreographed um, fireworks and lightning shows. So, without further ado, what is, I guess, tell us a little about those startups. What do those kind of entail? Sure. Uh, so, the main startup that I've been working on here in Montana is we are building adaptive optics for microscopes. Um, so in a microscope system, you typically have to manually change the focus, you have to manually adjust the turret lens so that you can change the zoom. Uh, that can be really annoying in like a biological application where you're looking at little cells and things are moving around. Uh, so what we're building is a dynamic system that can um, immediately control the focus and zoom and you can do tracking and sort of uh, applications in that sense. So it's actually a lot like a smartphone camera. They've gotten better and better, and a lot of that's because they have these dynamic focus and zoom control capabilities that just has not been uh, brought to microscopes yet. So yeah. we are working on that. So is that the one in Montana or Seattle? That is Montana. Montana. Okay. Yeah. And then what about the Seattle one? Yeah. And so for the, I'm working with a colleague, actually my PhD advisor in Seattle. Okay. Um, we're working on a new technology that is going to hopefully be applied to augmented and virtual reality. Um, so. Displays today are very good. If you look at your computer, if you're viewing us right now, the, the display looks awesome. You have probably no complaints about it. But the minute that you bring that display really close to your eyes and up into your face, you start seeing the pixels and you need really, really high resolution to make that look seamless and immersive like augmented and virtual, virtual reality are attempting to achieve. And this is really... I mean, you've probably heard a lot about the metaverse and there's all sorts of, all the tech companies are all in on trying to get augmented and virtual reality working. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we're actually trying to work on is a new technology for creating that really high resolution because the manufacturing of that resolution is really challenging and really expensive. Um, the one technology that seems viable is called micro LEDs. Okay. And so Samsung has been sort of the pioneer on micro LEDs and they recently released a micro LED television. Now it's like a wall, so it's a very big television. <laughs> yeah. But the television costs like hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's very cost prohibitive for a normal consumer. Mm -hmm. No one's gonna pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for like a VR headset. For sure, yeah. Ah, so the idea is our technology allows you to take this micro LED technology and cut its cost by orders of bank at two. So chop some zeros off those numbers. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of the goal. So we're trying to push this technology and really get it into the hands of these tech companies that are developing augmented virtual reality. It's amazing. So, so let's yeah. take a few steps back. Um, we touched a little bit on kind of like your story, what you got out of college and stuff, but why don't you go, 
I guess, just tell us that story of, you know, how you got going through school, how you got into that thing with Congress. Just kind of tell us your story of how you got to where you are now. Sure. Uh, so I'm a Butte native. I grew up here. Great town. Love it. Um, and when I graduated high school, I decided that electrical engineering was really intriguing and exciting for me. I always thought it was kind of magical. It's just <laughs> this, like, force that you can't see, but it does all sorts of crazy things like lighting and power and uh, so I went to Montana State University to study electrical engineering for my bachelor's of science degree. Uh, while at Montana State, I kind of got into some undergrad research um, with a professor over there, and we looked at doing nano optics. So um, basically, if you create these really teeny structures, we're talking, you're making, you're defining structures that are a hundredth of a human hair. Yeah. So hundredth or thousandth, it's really, really <laughs> small. Um, but you create these structures on the size scale of the wavelength of light. So it's like basically the same size as the wavelength of light. Mm-hmm. And you can do really interesting things by interacting with the light in this unique way. It's actually a lot of the reason like butterfly wings are so colorful is because there's these little nanostructures all over the wings, obviously created by nature, but that's what gives them this kind of iridescent color. Interesting. Um, so in that kind of vein, you can do a lot of cool stuff. So that got me really excited about optics and lasers and electromagnetics. Um, and so I decided to pursue graduate school. So I went to the University of Washington in Seattle, mm-hmm. um, where I continued on to sort of the micro optics sort of pathway. Um, and my research there was building a uh, resonant mass uh sensor for measuring the mass of single cells so a single human cell which is really really small Mm -hmm. it's 10 to the minus 12 grams (laughs) of mass so you can imagine you can't just walk into your bathrooms and put that on the scale and try to get anything meaningful out of it so we created these really small structures that vibrate at certain frequencies and by monitoring how that interaction happens you can measure the mass of a single cell Ah, and the goal of it was actually to monitor cells in cancer drug therapies to see on that sort of cellular level how they're growing and changing and dying or not dying um, in developing these drug therapeutics and really getting that feedback, um, which is really cool. Another part of that project was also using optical tweezers. So it's a lot like your sci-fi films. You can take a laser beam and you can actually grab onto particles and move them around. Now, obviously, this isn't happening at the size scale of humans, (laughs) but on the cellular level or subparticle level, you can actually grab them in a really high-intensity laser beam and move them around and manipulate them and control them. So as as part of that research and that device, we also use that technique to enhance the precision and do some more cool things with it. (laughs) Um, So that was my PhD research. Uh, After graduating from UW, I decided that I was really interested in helping kind of on the more societal level of technology and really seeing how that intertwines. Um, mm-hmm. And so I pursued this sort of fellowship program through IEEE, which is the like Professional Society for Electrical okay. and Computer Engineers. Uh, and so basically what that was is it was a one-year fellowship in the United States Congress. Uh, so I went off to D.C. after graduating, which was a really cool experience. And basically the role was serving as sort of the tech a technology advisor for um, Senator Cantwell and also for the United States uh, Committee on Commerce, Trans- Science and Transportation. It's always a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> so what does that kind of entail, I guess? Because, you know, obviously Congress, they, they vote, they do all those things. What is your, like, job 
for them, I guess. How does that work? Sure. So, obviously, Congress is grappling with lots and lots of issues, but often there'll be a science or technology issue that comes up. Like, for instance, 5G has a big been a big one, mm-hmm. or data privacy, or uh, electromagnetic, spe- uh, le- electromagnetic spectrum interactions, all sorts of scientific topics, which, you know, we wouldn't expect our senators... I mean, they can't all have PhDs and really understand these issues <laughs> sure, at yeah. length. And so typically what will happen is you'll have some kind of expert or uh, advisor in the Senate that would actually help di- help the senator or the committees dive into these issues more scientifically and technically and understand them. So my role was a lot, a lot of it was just kind of distilling these really complicated ideas like blockchain technologies or quantum computers and mm-hmm. distilling that into something that's meaningful to the senators is something that they can kind of vote on and yeah. analyze and understand themselves. Uh, and so that, that was a lot of the role in Congress. So in a sense, you had like really a huge impact on, you know, those decisions of like, on these people. So they can actually make an informed decision on these topics. That's exactly. Crazy. Yeah. So it was, it was a really awesome experience. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it up for the world. <laughs> um, so very cool. Um, and I've learned a whole lot about the other side of the like policy and politics world around science and technology, which is something I hadn't understood because you know I basically didn't leave the lab. You <laughs> yeah. Know? So it's like complete opposite worlds. Like mm-hmm. deep research, you're just by yourself in the lab, or you're like in Congress, basically legislating what can happen in science and technology. For sure. Um, so very cool. Yeah. And then yeah, so then after that fellowship ended, I was actually kind of on my way back to Seattle, mm-hmm. um, kind of get back, plugged back into the tech industry, but then the pandemic happened. <laughs> so I ended up, uh, I was literally moving my stuff out of Montana at the time. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah. that kind of got me situated here in Butte. And then that uh, allowed me to have this kind of bandwidth to start these companies um, here in Montana. And so I actually have a laser lab set up in my basement, <laughs> which is funny. Yeah, yeah. I was always like, is it going to burn down your house? Or, and I'm like, no, nah, that's fine. So, yeah, what is that? So, laser lab, that's like almost a buzzword, I guess. What does that like entail for, like, what does that look like, I guess? Describe that to me. Sure. Um, so, basically, there's a bunch of optical tables, which are these really heavy medical tables, uh, heavy metal tables that are very stable. Mm-hmm. Because for optics, if you have any vibration or any movement in the optics, the whole system kind of comes unhinged. Yeah. Uh, so you need these really stable tables. Uh, they're really expensive ones, like hundreds of thousands of millions <laughs> of dollars tables, which I obviously can't afford and put in my basement. Yeah. So uh, a couple of them are actually on like inflated air tubes so, they don't, so yeah. that they actually have some vibrational dampening um, because we're using lasers. And, and the, the system in my basement is actually set up to measure the vibra- uh, vibration at you know micron, nanometer level accuracy. And so it's very sensitive to anything that might be happening in the house or adjacent to the table. And so there's a lot of that set up. Of course, there's lots of microscopes and things you might expect <laughs> to find in a in a research lab. Yeah. Um, soldering station. I got an electrical station <laughs> for doing soldering, working yeah. on Pritchett circuit boards. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's not as cool as you probably would see in a movie because it's very <laughs> compact and small, but yeah. it works. It well, has yes. all the key That's awesome. yeah. elements. Yeah. So I guess kind of the next... I guess place I want to take this is, you know, we live in Butte and you kind of moved back here. Uh, we're very much a small town compared to, you know, Seattle or compared to like Silicon Valley or any of these other right. great like major places. So how did, you know, starting these companies and doing all these things, making a lab in your basement, 
how did being in Butte or being in a smaller town kind of affect how that started? Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, obviously in smaller towns, there's a lot of limited resources. Um, like, for instance, for the, the microscope startup that I'm working on, some of the devices that we make are very small, as I've kind of mentioned in a lot of my discussions, but mm. they're incredibly small. And to make these small, highly accurate structures uh, that are, you know, subhuman hair levels, and yeah. trying to make something at that level takes very expensive equipment and very expensive facilities. They're typically a clean room. Mm. So that just means like a, a laboratory where, you know, the particle sizes. It depends on the class, but some of them are, you know, less than hundreds or tens of nanometers in mm-hmm. size. You know, like an Intel lab where our computer chips are fabricated are, yeah. I mean, can't be dust-free, but let's just say there isn't a lot of dust in it. It's very <laughs> small what is in that room. Mm-hmm. And so these clean room facilities are very expensive, and the tools inside of them for machining silicon and doing the etching and doing all the lithography are very expensive. And so access to those kinds of facilities and resources is clearly limited in um, small towns. Mm-hmm. I would have to say the one thing that has come out of the pandemic is that, you know, a lot of work has gone sort of remote. And so it, it opens up the opportunity for companies like here in Butte to be remotely working with a microfabrication facility in, you know, wherever in the United States mm-hmm. or abroad, um, or working with other engineers who would also be helping with those issues um, so it does kind of open up these smaller communities and give those give access to some of those resources and uh, expertise that you may not have had otherwise mm-hmm. um, which is one plus side <laughs> yeah obviously sure. um, so well, I guess would you agree that you know now more than ever it's probably you're almost more like able to do some of these cool things you know in like a smaller town like you or any other small town across the world I think they're like now I guess that's like you can do it compared to maybe the way you wouldn't have been even possible before or uh yeah i i would certainly i mean especially in having this experience myself I yeah mean, i've lived it personally so i know it's doable and it's possible um but yeah i think this is this kind of more virtual or hybrid virtual world has opened up a lot of doors for that that to happen mm-hmm. in small towns absolutely um so basically you can start these companies with the people in those towns and then fill those kind of like expertise voids or resource voids by using resources and stuff virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a, kind of a great hybrid way to grow businesses that might have not otherwise ever happened in Butte. You know, yeah. I mean, these kind of tech companies would have to happen in Seattle or Silicon Valley or, you know, any of the big urban areas. But now, now that there's a lot of remote action, there's the internet, and <laughs> you can do a lot of stuff in rural America. And that, that was actually a big push in Congress is sort of they work on this rural broad, broadband mm-hmm. sort of technologies uh, rollout, rollout of the technologies because they see that small towns in and farm towns, you know, for economic growth, one of the things that can help help those communities is by bringing the tech sector to them. And mm-hmm. so obviously the internet's a pathway, a super highway for that kind of technology development. And so opening that up in a lot of these smaller communities like you really opens up a lot of possibilities. Absolutely. So I'll almost flip that question the other way. Um, when you started your companies here, like, you know, all this tech and this industry is coming to smaller towns. Um, like, like as an example, you've done, right? You kind of started this company here that maybe wouldn't have been here before. Mm-hmm. 
Um, what kind of effect do you think that would have, like, you know, on the towns that they were going to? Like, what kind of effect does that have on, you know, the, like, view, and in general, you know, be becoming more technologically advanced, technologically advanced, or, like, what would you say as far as it, how it affects the town, per se? Sure. I mean, I guess, from a personal viewpoint on the companies I'm working with, um, like, the hope is that someday these companies really take off. Most startups fail, so it's tricky. <laughs> but someday if they take off, you know, that's a lot of jobs. That's a lot of economic development here in Butte. Mm-hmm. And like you're kind of hinting at, would actually develop a lot of the technology sector here. The one other great thing is, you know, tech companies attract other tech companies. So if you can build up that ecosystem locally, you know, with a few small companies that get going maybe in this remote hybrid way, uh, you could attract a lot more industry that come to view because they see, oh, well, there's a, all these other tech startups that have made it. Uh, there's a lot of infrastructure or um, various resources there now. And, and so that's kind of how that, that really develops. Yeah. I mean, an interesting example is Bozeman. Um, it's, you know, in Montana's world, it's a very big town, a big city. But in, yeah. to the rest of the world, it's a very small community. For, for some reason, they have a, actually a really high-tech optics community, which you would never guess. Mm-hmm. They have a numerous companies that are experts in optics and optical technologies. And that was really kind of one of those grassroots efforts out of Montana State University, uh, which did optics and kind of got some of those sort of startups and people interested in it. And over the years, it's just developed into sort of a hub, a small hub for sort of that technology space. And Interesting. So, so that is definitely a pathway to getting some of the, our smaller communities like here in Montana to be more of a tech mm-hmm. tech center, which is a lot of great jobs, a lot of opportunities for people coming up. Absolutely. So I, was, I also want to talk, I guess, a little bit more on kind of your, your companies, like especially the one in um, Montana, because that's kind of, I guess, where we are. So is it just like you and another, like per, who, who else is like working with you in that? Yeah, uh, so I actually kind of came to this company a little bit after it had started. Okay. Um, so I'm working with a colleague that I knew from my undergrad days at Montana State. Mm-hmm. She did her uh, doctoral degree or her PhD at Montana State. And this is actually her, um, the, the basic basis technology for how it works came out of her PhD. Okay. And so I've been working with her. She is actually located in Bozeman. Mm-hmm. So we've been remote working <laughs> remote with working, each yeah. other. Um and so working with her, that's, that's kind of where we have a number of other, um, like mechanical or electrical engineers or optics engineers, but me and her kind of been working together on this startup. Mm-hmm. So I guess the next kind of area we'll take this into is the idea, I guess we'll just, I want to talk about that Congress aspect a little bit, that mm-hmm. opportunity you're able to have. What is like the options, I guess, for somebody who maybe wants to be in politics or something like that, but maybe doesn't want to be a politician? You think there's almost like a fine, like an area, I guess, per se, of that mix of, you know, like STEM and, you know, politics are affecting the world's decisions. What is like your take on that? Yeah. I mean, the reason these programs have grown, the, the, the fellowship that I was in, is that there's a recognition that there's a need in Congress for informed policymaking. So these really complex issues, like I mentioned, it's not reasonable to expect any one person to be able to handle all these super complicated issues and understand them in depth. And so you need these technical voices and these um, experts in Congress helping guide that process. Mm -hmm. And there just aren't enough experts, you know? Um, And so there is a lot of growth in that sector in in terms of 
stem. Obviously, you have a lot of the big companies there lobbying, you know, they have their side of the technology story, uh, which is usually helping their companies, yeah, right? Sure. And so there's a lot of other nonprofits or um, think tanks is what they're called, which will assemble a bunch of experts who might know that field well and will... Sometimes they can be kind of skewed a certain yeah. way. I mean, that's just the world of politics, but... There's a lot of different competing voices that are working on these technology issues there. So, so for someone who's interested in not being like a senator or a politician, but who is really interested in being there on the policy side, developing these policies, there's any number of these organizations that someone can join mm -hmm. and be right there on the ground. So you'd be writing up briefs and um, uh, materials that you'd be providing with to the senators or the congressmen um, or the executive agencies, for instance, that would really help them guide guide the technologies in that yeah. um, political process. I guess more of like a personal story for you. How did you navigate kind of all of that? You know, you said there's the, like, well, take 5G, for example. You know, there was all like the misinformation about that was in, in the world. You know, it's, it's going to cause whatever diseases and things. And there's all like, you know, people have different opinions on whether it should be like in their town or not. How mm -hmm. do you, and like, you know, in that position, even like approach, like even, you know, informing somebody about that. Like how do you even start, I guess, is my... Yeah. Yeah, does that make sense, I guess? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, so technically I uh, literally had never read anything I had ever studied in mm -hmm. school. Obviously that, that just wasn't my background. Yeah. Um, but having the background in electromagnetics and I don't really know the biology side that well. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, having that technical mindset and that, that technical analytical analytical problem solving um, really helped me understand the issue in maybe a way that a person who's more um, politically minded might not be able to dive in at a technical level. Uh, and so in that role, I would study the issue, look at the study of the literature, study all of the um, information that's out there and that's currently available, and then try to distill that into facts that seem real facts mm -hmm. and are um, prescient to making that sort of decision. Um, I don't feel like there's a one one way to to, to um, approach that, mm -hmm. but that's kind of typically yeah, how I would go. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I'm talking very coherently on that topic, oh, but yeah. it's, it just sense. varies yeah. on the issue. It can really depend on mm -hmm. how much I know on the issue myself from prior education and how much I need to kind of educate myself about the topic. For sure. So what's like one, I guess, you know, throughout your career, throughout your education, what is one moment, like almost your wow moment that you just like, you know, step back and like, wow, that's just an amazing thing. I never knew that, you know, I could do that or the technology could do that and that this was happening in the world. Like what is that one moment, I guess, throughout your life that was really just like inspiring to you, I guess, or like. Yeah, me personally or, yeah. or more on a technology why? You personally, I guess. Like, you, yeah, you, you personally. Um, yeah, well, I guess one thing that's come up in the modern age of technology, which I think is really cool, is <laughs> quantum computing. Um, I have not personally worked on a quantum computer or quantum mm -hmm. technology, but I think that what it promises to do in this next wave of computing technology is quite impressive. And if we can make it happen, the technology community, I think it will be pretty astounding. So 
that's kind of a wow moment. And I mean, yeah. they have done demonstrations that are really small scale and really cool, um, which has a lot of promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of wow moments for me in the lab that are probably boring to most <laughs> people because, you know, they're just more like after banging your head on the wall for you for years, you know, yeah. PhD is like five years of just very <laughs> independent study. You have no idea what you're doing. You're wading into this like world of ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you make a discovery and you actually are successful after like a few years of nothing happening, <laughs> it's really exciting and really wow. Yeah. But um, just so like, like I guess for instance, like the minute I actually was able to measure the mass of a single cell at 10 to the minus 12 picograms was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, in the world of science, I don't know if this is like the biggest breakthrough. <laughs> I'm not going to win a Nobel Prize for it. Yeah. But for me, it was very cool. Yeah. So yeah. Just all that work going into that one kind of achievement that you got, which is awesome. Right. Yeah. So I want, we talked a little bit about it in your introduction, but I was just curious. We talked a little bit off camera too about your, I guess, musically choreographed light, light or firework and light shows. Would you like to talk a little bit about what, what is that hobby? What does that sure. entail? Um, not really sure where the hobby came from, but I've always really liked the idea of synchronizing oh. lights and music. I think it probably actually came from me discovering some of those cool YouTube videos where people like really deck out their houses for the holidays <laughs> and do like Christmas light shows and all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been to, like, Disney World and Las <laughs> Vegas and some of the cool, some of the really cool um, examples of that sort of mm-hmm. uh, technology. So, actually, here in Butte, I started, like, a Christmas light show not, I don't know, it was probably 10 years ago at my parents' house. <laughs> uh, so, I would, like, fire them up every Christmas and we'd decorate the yard and we'd have hundreds of circuit boards in the yard that would control <laughs> the music and synchronize it and by the end of it you could actually get on your smartphone and like kids can interact with the lights and turn on different lights in the yard or there were like some storytelling characters and stuff like that yeah. so that became really fun and just was a fun hobby it was really a lot of work so that <laughs> has actually kind of ended yeah but now um the hobby is more uh, doing firework shows for like the fourth of july yeah. um which is fun so there's like some lighting that is choreographed to the music, but then we also have fireworks. So I designed all of these like control systems and circuit boards myself. Okay. Uh, so the first time we did it, it was kind of scary. There was like a hundred artillery shells in the yard, a hundred <laughs> like other fireworks spread all over. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you like arm the system, <laughs> like, I don't know, I didn't test it that well. I was <laughs> not sure if everything would go off all at simultaneously at once. It was kind of scary. So I was telling everyone, I'm like, just be ready to watch this really crazy show happen at once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it went off fine. Yeah. Uh, so that was good. kind of fun. <laughs> and then that has kind of morphed now into we, my family has been building a cabin kind of toward Georgetown area. Okay. And I have like integrated a lot of fancy light show type technologies into the cabin. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a weird, it's like a cabin that meets like modern technology. <laughs> Uh, so there's like a voice that talks and it has all these synchronized like capabilities and this yeah. smart home server that does all the things you'd want it to do. <laughs> so those are kind of been some of my hobbies. Yeah. I don't know where they came from. I don't know why I keep doing them, but they're, you enjoy that's them. just what hobbies are. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So the next place I kind of want to take this is in, if someone wants to maybe follow in your footsteps in the sense of, you know, getting their PhD or one maybe go into Congress, want to have their own startup, what is some advice you might give for even either of those kind of areas 
uh, someone maybe wanted to kind of come up underneath you in the same way that you did? Um, sure. <laughs> I feel like every path is always different. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think some of those are different goals. Um, I feel like you could, you could probably start a company without going through and getting a PhD. Um, so if you're interested in doing a tech startup, um, I think it all starts probably, typically you would need to get a bachelor's of science in the particular area you're interested in. So mm-hmm. like more electrical engineering, more optics, more computer science. Um, that's kind of where, it, at least it started for me. Um, I know actually, well, I spent thinking the computer science space is very famous for not even getting, needing a bachelor's degree, <laughs> yeah. degree to do really cool stuff. So maybe I'll back up and not <laughs> say that's required. I guess just showing that spark and interest and figuring out what gets you excited is the first step. Mm-hmm. Um, and then pursuing the things that you need to do to get into that field, which often can be a, a college degree. Um, if, if the person wants to do more of a research and development career pathway, uh, that would be typically when you'd want to get a PhD. Yeah. Um, obviously, because you're interested in working in the space that has not been done before, you want to research, you want to figure out all, all branding stuff, mm-hmm. um, which is cool. But then there's also a lot of fun on the engineering side of just making technologies work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of an ambiguous answer. It's not very direct, and it really depends on what someone wants to do. But if someone wants to follow in my career path footsteps, I guess I was really interested in doing more of the deep science, deep research side of things. So that's what kind of drew, drew me to the PhD. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, it's kind of a pretty clear process where you get your bachelor's <laughs> and then Actually, you don't have to get a master's. You can just go straight into the PhD and get like master's and PhD. Yeah. Um, and then be kind of ready for that research career, mm-hmm. um, which for me has kind of started more in the startup space just because I, it is cool being your own boss <laughs> and kind of dri- driving the technology the way you want to see it. Whereas, you know, if I was an employee at like Microsoft or one of the big tech companies, you know, there's so many layers <laughs> above you that. You don't get to make those big you decisions, lost, yeah. <laughs> generally, unless you're the CEO of Microsoft and whatever you want. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, so that's that's what attracts me to the startup world is the fact that you can wear lots of hats. So you know, I don't have to just sit and be an engineer all day. I can mm-hmm. go do business development. I can talk to customers. I can you know work on policy, work on all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's that's one thing that really attracted me to the startup world and. Mm-hmm why I'm kind of here and just <laughs> doing kind of a normal job yeah um is that that wearing many hats and doing lots of jobs it's very varied and exciting to try different stuff absolutely and so yeah I feel like it really depends on which way you want to go but um for me I'm happy that I have the PhD and I can kind of get some <laughs> some of that more research-based yeah. um technology a- avenues <laughs> For you personally, I guess, what motivates you to get through you know, all those layers of education? Because you, know, you said your PhD took what, like five years, something like that. Or yeah. So what was was it just sheer curiosity, or like how did you motivate to you know just keep pushing those next like levels of your education and yourself? Yeah, I would definitely say it's curiosity. It's PhD is a challenging degree in the sense that it's so independent. Uh, it's so independent that. If you don't have a reason that gets you up in the morning and gets you excited and curious, like you, 
it's very common that people do not finish the dissertation and actually graduate with their PhD just really? because it's it's <laughs> such an independent journey and so people just can't don't motivate themselves to do it. And so to go on the PhD path, you really have to be excited about the technology or excited about the process. I mean, really the PhD is not making you an expert in any particular field or any particular technology. It's making you an expert at research and questing for like this unknown knowledge. Like mm-hmm. how do you solve a scientific problem when no one else knows how to do it? So that's kind of the learning of the PhD and it's very independent in that sense. Um, so so generally, I'd say, yeah, the curiosity and that drive to discover new things and develop new things is what will get you through all of that. Because it, it's very, it's many years of school. <laughs> by the time I started my PhD, it was probably at least 10, yeah, 10 years, 10 years of yeah. like gra- graduate school Ooh, and various 10 years of grad, yeah, that's a lot. Or sorry, no, 10 years total. 10 years total. Yeah. Well, still. undergrad, <laughs> school. Oh, yeah. So, um. Yeah, so that curiosity, that really excitement about innovation and being on that cutting edge of technology, I think is what helps drive you through all that education. And Because, you know, you can get a very good job at the end of your bachelor's degree. Um, so it's making that decision of why do I want to continue on to do the PhD? And that, that curiosity driver is, like you put it, is really probably what you should look to. <laughs> yeah. Well, absolutely. And in classic Toggletown fashion, what what is your favorite kind of ice cream? Uh, I really like the half-baked from Tom and Jerry's, <laughs> but also another classic is licorice ice cream. Licorice it's hard to cream. find. So hard that to is find. the reason I did not suggest that one first. <laughs> Thank you. There's your spoon. Thank you. Before we dig in... Just like to thank you for coming out for the show. Really appreciate your time. It seems like you got a lot going on, two startups in two different towns, but yeah, um, yeah I really appreciate it. And we'll see you all next time. Thank you for watching. Take a moment to like, comment your thoughts, and subscribe to Toggle Town so you don't miss the next interview. We post every Wednesday. See you next time. <laughs>